from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, and he is able to cause your people to know the truth and to love the truth. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with your wisdom. Help us to know you. Help us to delight in who you are. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, unfortunately, we're not going to have much of the sermon on the slides, but I will try to stay aimed at one particular goal, which is the celebration of the season of Easter in returning to words that Jesus had said prior to his death and resurrection, to reevaluate those words in the light of the resurrection. Traditionally, in the season of Easter, we spend a number of weeks looking at the gospel messages, the gospel writers, as they announce the resurrection of Jesus through their writings. But we don't just understand the resurrection accounts as validating or verifying what Jesus did in predicting that he would be raised from the dead, but also in validating and verifying all of what Jesus has said about himself. Because if Jesus goes to the cross and dies and stays dead, everything that he promised, as we will see in these readings, is null and void. There's nothing to show for it. There's, there's nothing that Jesus really has to, to uh, stand on. There's nothing that Jesus can actually fulfill or do, because if he's, if he's dead, he can't fulfill the promises that he's made, which talk about eternal things. Therefore, we use the season of Easter, which we are still in this, this week, we use the season of Easter to return to these sayings of Jesus and to re-examine them in the light of what has happened in the resurrection. John's gospel records the preaching of Jesus as he testifies to the people of Israel that he is the Christ. When we say the Christ, we don't just mean the last name of Jesus. We don't simply mean a title that we use to ascribe worship to him. The Christ means that Jesus was the one who was ordained or foreknown by God and debt and set apart by God to sit on the throne of his father, uh, David. Jesus, therefore, in testifying that he is the Christ, means he's the anointed one. He's the one who's designated for a function, and that is to sit on the throne. He is the Messiah. He is the one to come and to rescue the people of Israel. 
One significant aspect of Jesus' person and ministry in the Gospels, and as he is truly in reality, is to be the good shepherd. Jesus has come to Israel to gather all of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus, therefore, testifies through his actions of what he came to do. I, I uh, love repeating myself when I'm trying to ensure that a point has, has been transferred and received, that Jesus, his deeds externally say something about what he's doing internally. Jesus did not just come to be a miracle worker to a local group of Israelites in the first century. That is to say that what Jesus is doing when he heals someone is testifying about how his healing works, that it's perfect, that it's powerful, that it's dramatic, that it transforms lives and changes destinies. And Jesus uses this idea of the good shepherd as a way to educate his people. It's an illustration that he uses to describe who he actually is. Jesus is not an actual shepherd. He is what the real shepherd is. And all the actual shepherds in the world are pointing to him. That's what he says of himself in John chapter 10. Therefore, Jesus is addressing the full spectrum of issues which blind men to who he is. As the good shepherd, he is not merely collecting or he is not merely preserving rather his sheep. He is going and gathering sheep for his sheepfold. Just as Jesus testified to the Israelites in our reading that day, his words resonate down to the present. People of all sorts of streams, flavors, backgrounds, when they come to this reading, Jesus' words deeply apply to them. Some people presume themselves to be Christians, but they do not know the good shepherd's voice at all. Their ears need to be opened that they may hear him and come to life. Some who claim to be Christians, different than who presume to be Christians but don't have any external evidence, some who claim to be Christians presume that they can name Christ and yet never follow him in obedience. And yet Jesus says, my sheep follow me. Some Christians, other Christians, however, they are truly genuine Christians. They have been laid hold of by Christ. They are part of his sheepfold, and yet they fear that they can somehow lose their salvation. They believe, it, at least subconsciously or subtly, that they can be snatched by the evil one or that they will drift away from the shepherd and the shepherd will never come and receive them back. Perhaps they fear that their sins will eventually be too much for Jesus to acquit or to forgive, and they fear that at last Jesus will let them go and they will drown in a sea of sin and iniquity. No matter what sort of Christian you are, all Christians everywhere recognize too little how great God's grace has been in their conversion. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saying, the Father has given me this flock. It is because of his work that I am the good shepherd. He has appointed me to be the good shepherd, and he has given me all of the individual sheep, and I will lose none of them. Every Christian is in great need of learning at a deeper level that explodes into praise a greater understanding of the grace of God in their conversion. Many of us have escaped the error of believing I chose Jesus. As Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
And if we still assess ourselves as somehow, somehow we have come to faith of our own accord, we are in deep need of repair. We may be indeed Christians, but the way that we understand ourselves is not, it's not true. We think that we have journeyed to God, and yet all along, brothers and sisters, it has been God who has been drawing us to himself. The Father has given the sheep into Jesus' hands. The sheep did not find the shepherd. Therefore, the message that John 10 calls to us is that all of God's people should praise him for calling them into his flock. In this passage, Jesus answers each one of these needs definitively and directly. First, we're going to look at John's gospel history, the first two verses. And since we don't have the majority of the sermon on the slides today through an unfortunate technical glitch, I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible already, to grab one so that you can follow along as we are moving through this passage. First, we're going to look at the history that John used in explaining the context of what Jesus is saying. Unfortunately, there is no way to avoid history in life. If you like that class, you, you, good for you, amen. If you don't like history, learn to love it because so much of what God has done is dependent upon an understanding of the history that is not immediately apparent on the surface of the text. What do I mean by that? We will have to do some digging, and I will take you through that little archaeological tour very briefly. Next, we are going to examine the Jews' question, that is, their question to Jesus and what it says about them. It, it says that they don't understand who he is because Jesus, as he answered, I've said that I'm the Messiah. Next, we're going to look at Jesus' answer and his witness. The, the deeds that he does are testifying about who he is internally. Then we're going to look at Jesus as the good shepherd, the one who gathers the flock and holds the flock and protects the flock and calls the flock. And then we're going to look at how Jesus has masterfully taught quite well, quite beautifully, that the Father and He are one. They are one in purpose and one in essence. John records Jesus' words in a covenantal context, which is also historically verifiable. It's important to understand what John is doing. He says in verse 22, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Jesus' presence at the feast of dedication had a deep covenantal significance. In John's gospel, Jesus routinely connects his public preaching to Israel's history with God. I want you, if you remember where John's gospel takes us. If you, if you remember that context, this will become clear. We're going to took, take a look at two different events in the life of Jesus in the book of John where he does this. In John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, which, which was a dispersion or a distribution of bread in a wilderness, Jesus testifies that he is greater than the manna which came down in the time of the Exodus in the wilderness. So what Jesus does in the feeding of the 5,000 is he feeds people with bread in a desolate place and then uses that opportunity to declare himself as the real bread which satisfies life. He is the bread of life. He causes men to live. Without eating, men will die. And without eating Christ, men cannot live. They cannot live eternally. They cannot know God. So Jesus has connected what he did, the feeding of the 5,000, to the history of Israel when manna came down as Moses was leading the people throughout the wilderness after they left Egypt. 
Likewise, in the very next chapter in John 7, in the middle of the Feast of Booths, which was a feast in which God was remembered as preserving Israel in the wilderness, Jesus shouts out in the middle of the temple that he himself is the water of life. Again, if you remember Exodus, one of the great needs as you're moving through a wilderness is water. And God over and over again caused water to come forth. At one point, he led them to springs and a well. Uh, At one point, God called uh, Moses to speak to a rock and, and to bring water forth. And Moses struck that rock. Jesus says in the middle of Israel's feast, at the final day, at the height of the religious celebration of the Feast of Booths, remembering God's faithfulness, Jesus says, I'm better than the water that Israel got in the wilderness. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The reason we're going through this history is because what Jesus does in this chapter is extremely significant to understand the meaning. In John, over and over again, Jesus uses a feast in the nation's history, a feast of their cultural celebration, to say something about himself. Therefore, when John in this chapter records that Jesus was in the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate a feast, we must understand what Jesus next says in the light of what that particular feast meant to Israel. Does that make sense? Jesus is using the the manna which came down to say, I'm the real manna. I'm the manna. I'm the bread which came down from heaven. In the middle of the Feast of Booths, Jesus says, I'm the water of life that you need to drink. If you don't drink of me, you'll die. Therefore, what Jesus is doing in this feast, the Feast of Dedication, has to be understood in what the Feast of Dedication meant to Israelites. We have to know what the Israelites we're doing in the Feast of Dedication, and this is where we need to know God's history. God did not just write the Bible. He also wrote all of history. The sovereign providential God has been ruling and reigning over the nations, as he's prophesied about, especially through Daniel, that he's been raising up kingdoms and tearing down kingdoms so that his king could be demonstrated as the one who he has set on his holy hill. And in the time between the Testaments, a very important thing took place, something that most of you probably have not given much thought to. After the return to the land after the exile, the Babylonian exile, the Jews rebuilt the second temple, and their ability to rebuild the second temple was a sign of God's favor, a sign of God's mercy that he actually has been drawing back this wayward nation into the promised land once again. However, after a few centuries, a a culture or a people called the Seleucids rose to power. Now, many of us know the Romans and we know the Greeks, but the Seleucids are a little bit strange to us. We don't hear about them that much. Nevertheless, they were an empire that reigned for about two or three centuries, maybe a little bit longer. The Seleucids, when they rose to power, prohibited worship in Jerusalem. They changed the way that the Jews expressed their faith in the keeping of their religious customs. The the Feast of Dedication, which Jesus is now celebrating, today is commonly called Hanukkah. Many of you know the story of Hanukkah, which took place in the context of the Seleucids' oppression. What had happened was this. There was a revolt from 167 to 160 BCE. 
And the reason I say BCE is just to get in a simple joke. You've heard it said that BCE stands for before the common era. What BCE actually means is before Christ's empire. Kudos, kudos to Pastor Wilson for that one. <laughs> Though not a feast in the law, Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate this intertestamental feast. Jesus went up, and it means that he's not giving credence necessarily to the fact that the Maccabeans were righteous in what they did. Jesus isn't saying that he vindicates all of their demise as they cleansed the temple, rededicated, and then were wiped out. Jesus is saying something extremely important. Just as he said, I'm the real bread and I'm the real water, Jesus in these passages is saying, I'm the one who's drawing Israel back into the promised land. I'm the one who's really building the temple. This temple that you see, it's not the temple that will stay. The Jews saw the return from exile as a gathering of the lost sheep, but Jesus proclaims himself as the good shepherd. And it has to be understood that way because the prophets say that the flocks were wandering in Babylon. And Jesus comes and says, in the middle of the feast of the dedication, I'm the real shepherd. Just as Jesus does these things in the context of Israel's history, John, the gospel writer, records this exchange as a historical account. You who are going evangelizing might find this to be a very helpful idea. And even if you're not evangelizing, it's important to know that our faith is rooted in history. John records this with historically verifiable details. John correctly identifies the time of the Feast of Dedication as taking place in the winter. That's why for some of us who grew up not knowing what Hanukkah was, we may have thought it's just the Jewish Christmas. It's not but it does take place in the winter, to be true. And John records that Jesus was at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon in the winter. There are historical moments that John is testifying to here. John describes Jesus walking in a particular city, in a particular place. And when John's gospel was actually written, there would have been people perhaps, who had lived in the time of Jesus, who likely would have remembered a dramatic altercation in the temple during that feast. Remember, what takes place is not just what we see in this reading, but after our reading today, just the very next few verses, the Jews begin to try to stone him. A stoning in the middle of the temple court would have been remembered forever. That'd be like a shooting in front of the Capitol building or a shooting on the steps of the Supreme Court. No one would forget that sort of moment. And so when John presents his gospel and it begins to be distributed among the churches, it's likely the case that there are people who can say, yeah, Jesus was in the temple during the Feast of Dedication, and there was an altercation, and this is the summary of what they debated that day. John's gospel, as we saw the last few weeks, was written, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And it must be understood, brothers and sisters, If we are to believe that Jesus is the Christ, believing requires truth. John's writing a document. He's presenting a Jesus who's doing something covenantally significant and historically verifiable. This is an amazing passage, and what a gift we have in this passage. Next, we turn to the question that the the Jews ask of Jesus. This question that the Jews ask of Jesus reveals a lack of understanding of his public teaching and ministry. 
In verse 24, it says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Contemporary expectations for the Messiah at this time were far too narrow. As we saw in the context of celebrating the Maccabean revolt, Jesus is doing something amazing. Their question, the Jews' question, reveals a spiritual deafness. They do not have the ability to hear the words that Jesus is saying about himself. Even though the Jews have heard him speak, they didn't recognize the significance of what Jesus said. Remember, these are the same Jews who would have been there at the Feast of Booths to hear Jesus in the middle of the temple say, I'm the water of life. I'm the water that you're all remembering here, that you're celebrating. The real water is me. Even though Jesus has proclaimed himself as the bread of life, which sustain men forever, they don't recognize that as fulfilling the expectations of the Christ. They say to Jesus, if you, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus replies that he has been telling them. What this question reveals is they do not have ears to hear. Jesus not only said he's the bread of life, he says he's the water of life, which alone is going to quench the thirst of men's souls. Their question, they just want to know if he's going to throw out the Romans. Remember, the Maccabean revolt overthrew the Seleucids who were clamping down the religious worship in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions, preventing the Hellenized Jews from actually fulfilling the law externally. And they want to know who's going to set things right in Israel. Their expectation of who the Messiah is supposed to be is one who will get rid of Rome, not one who will be the greatest answer to everything that we need. Jesus, therefore, responds saying that his preaching has been clear and his signs have been confirmed, yet they do not believe. In verse 25, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus actually has told them that he is the Christ, but not by using the words, quote, I am the Christ, quote. Jesus is saying, I've told you plainly. Jesus has testified of himself that he is everything that God promised the Messiah would be. He's going to bring about true righteousness to a wayward nation. He's going to be the light of the world and the life of men, and he's going to be the bread of life and the water of life. Jesus is everything that the human heart could desire. He's not merely an external political Messiah. He is a Messiah of dark men's souls. And therefore, none of them can believe. The Jews cannot believe Jesus because they do not understand him. And they do not understand him because they are blinded not only of who he is, they are also blinded of their own need for that sort of Messiah. They want a Messiah who will deliver them from taxes. Oh, how many libertarians want a Messiah <laughs> who will deliver them from taxes. They need to be delivered from taxing other people in their hearts. They need to be delivered from wanting their money more than righteousness. They need to be delivered for having such a low view of God's covenant promises with Israel that they just merely externally celebrate the feast but actually aren't worshiping God 
in truth, because if they were, they would recognize who Jesus is. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says that the words which he does are deeds done on the Father's behalf. If these Israelites truly wished to return to God, if they really were celebrating the rededication of the temple for the reestablishment of God's glory in the middle of Israel, then they would come and stream to Jesus. They would recognize the Father's kindness in the signs which Jesus has done. Jesus has not just done external signs to bless a certain number of individuals. He has done those signs to testify that he has come from God because our deeds expose our inward reality as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. These Israelites do not want to recognize the Father because they do not want to receive the testimony of Jesus' deeds. The testimony of Jesus' deeds is God is a healing God. God is a forgiving God. God is a God who can solve problems without needing to answer, as we see in the prior chapter, of who caused this sin, this man or his parents, in order that he was born blind. That is the sort of God that Jesus presents himself as in John's gospel. And he says to these Jews who ask him if he's the Messiah is, I've told you. I've told you through who I am. I've told you through what I've done. The Lord, Jesus says, through his life is compassionate and gracious. These Jews want to justify themselves in their opposition to Rome rather than recognizing it as the scenario in which God is going to bring forth the Messiah. They would rather justify themselves with the traditions of men than receive the burden lifter incarnate. The Lord who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, is manifesting himself in the person of the Son, and the Israelites yawn at his presence. They don't know who he is, and they're not clearly in love with him. Everything about Jesus screamed, this is the Messiah. And yet, as John says at the beginning of his gospel in 111, he says, he came to his own, and his own received him not. The reason for the Jews' unbelief is, as Jesus says, is they're not a part of Jesus' flock. They presumed to have Abraham as their father, yet they were in God's people, but were not of God's people. This is a very important distinction, brothers and sisters. You must have in your minds an understanding that you can be around God's people, but not be one of God's people. What does Jesus mean? We have to ask ourselves these questions. What does Jesus mean when he says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep? Put another way, why does Jesus say that they would be believing if they were his sheep? And then another question presents itself, does believing make you a sheep or do I believe because I'm a sheep? These questions are screaming from the text. They're screaming from what Jesus is preaching to these people. Jesus' teaching as the good shepherd is perfect and it is precious. It calls to faith, it rebukes, it corrects, and encourages all at the same time, addressing hundreds of possible mixtures of heart, a great vast continuum of hearers Jesus is speaking directly toward. In John 10, 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
For those who do not hear his voice, Jesus warns that you are not his sheep. I want you to hear that again. If you do not hear Jesus' voice, you are not his sheep. What does it mean to hear Jesus' voice? I have never heard God speak to me audibly, and I hope neither have you, because it is a terrifying thing in the scriptures for God to speak audibly to you. So much waywardness of doctrine comes from people saying, well, the Lord revealed this to me. Book, chapter, and verse. How did he speak to you? He spoke to you through the word. The spirit gave life to the word. He caused the word to be illumined to you. And Jesus says, if you don't hear my voice, you're not of my flock. Take heart, however, because just as Jesus in the prior chapter healed the man who was born blind, he likewise can give new ears to those who are born spiritually deaf. And for the record, we all are born spiritually deaf. Jesus is the one who can give new ears. It's so amazing that he restores a person's ear right before he goes to the cross. If you do not understand the scriptures when you read them, or if even clear preaching makes no sense to you, despair and then yet immediately take heart because the Holy Spirit can give you new ears. A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven, including the ability to hear God's word. Look to Christ, the good shepherd, that he might call you and that you might hear his voice. He is the one who can cause his voice to gain entrance into your soul. If you are merely near God's flock and yet not a sheep, take care lest you presume to evade the good shepherd's detection. Jesus knows each of his flock by name, and he can identify those who are not truly his flock but have snuck in another way. Those who are not sheep but are actually goats, that is, those who claim Christ superficially but do not desire him, he is able to detect their presence among the flock. He, just by being around the flock does not make you a sheep. If your heart is continually straying from the shepherd, come to him to receive a new heart. In 1 Peter 2.25, Peter writes to his hearers, For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As the good shepherd, Jesus always sees the wolves that are trying to sneak into the flock. Out of his love for the flock, he is never ashamed to call out a wolf. If you have snuck into the fold in order to be a wolf, be warned, Christ sees you. And yet, at the same time, tremble. It is a dangerous thing to be a wolf to come into the flock. Because not only can Jesus, the good shepherd, wrangle you with his crook, he can also transform you into a sheep. Don't despair if you're a wolf. If, you, if the Spirit shows you that you're actually a poisonous part of the flock, don't despair. Jesus transforms wolves. The greatest conversion in the New Testament is God laying hold of a wolf named Saul who was coming in among the flock, pretending to be a Christian from time to time to get into their meetings and arrest and round up Christians and hand them over to be killed. Saul was the guy who was kind of organizing the coat rack at the meeting where they killed Stephen, and he was laid hold of by Christ. We're indirectly answering those questions we asked. Do I come as a sheep to Jesus, the shepherd, 
Or does he call me to be a sheep? Does he cause me to be a sheep? Despite the many warnings, Jesus' teaching is radically gracious and it's radically encouraging. Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. He's the one who holds his sheep. What terrible news would the gospel be if Jesus merely outwined a way to live righteous enough to become a sheep? Can you imagine how depressing and how terrible, how odious the gospel would be if Jesus merely said, I'm the way, if you follow me, you can live? If he didn't also temper that with, I give my sheep eternal life, none of us could have cause to hope. None of us can follow the way without him leading us on the way. That's the point of a shepherd. It's to lead a flock into a particular way. Unless Jesus bestows life upon me, I can never hope to receive eternal life, but would only expect to perish. And further, woe is me if I should have to sustain myself after being made new. If you've been a Christian for even a few minutes, you have recognized that your heart is wayward, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you you hear that? Prone to lead the God I love. That what a beautiful truth. We do love God. He's made us into his children, but we're prone to wander from the one who we love. What a perfect picture of how the good shepherd, the, the line in that hymn goes on to say, Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it for thy courts above. That's what we need God, the good shepherd, to do for us. Even though all guilt of sin is removed in Christ, we are still weak human beings. Even if we could triumph our sin, even if we could triumph over our sin after Christ has conquered it, even if we could somehow become perfect, in the sense of we don't go on to continue to need for forgiveness and need for ongoing transformation, we still are weak human beings, and we have great evil powers to contend with. And not only that, fellow wretched human beings to contend with. How terrible would it be if Jesus just made us new and left us to go on our own? We need to recognize his persistent, persevering hand. If any are saved... It's because Christ holds them tenderly in his powerful hand. Once when describing the nature of a Christian husband, an author who I love described it as a velvet-covered brick. It is soft to the touch. It is stable to put things on. That is how Jesus holds you, brothers and sisters. He has a powerful hand, which from the external cannot be removed from you, and yet he holds you tenderly like a shepherd over the lambs that he loves. Jesus then goes on to glorify his father, saying that it is the father who has given his charge as the good shepherd. It is the father who not only has called him to be the shepherd, it's the father who has given each of the sheep to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 29, it says, my father who has given the flock to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So just before he said, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand, and then he immediately says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And it's as if the Lord Jesus anticipates the next question coming from his hearers. How does that work? We're in your hand, and no one can take us out, but we're in the Father's hand, and no one can take us out. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We're, We're unified 
The Father is indeed greater than all, even greater than Jesus as concerns his manhood, but not his deity. And yet, Jesus and the Father are one. The Father is greater than all, and yet the Son and the Father are one. There is no rivalry in God between the members of the Trinity in the unfolding of the plan of redemption and the working of the same. There is no rivalry in God. Everything which God does in his external works, all the members of the Trinity participate in them. I had a wonderful moment this morning when we were saying the Nicene Creed. And just as an aside here, I would hope that as we say the creed week by week, it does not become a dull thing to you, but you avail yourselves of what you are saying, that you give attention to what you are saying. Because I never recognized how the creed itself in one kind of small, probably obscure phrase to most of us talks about how God is all at work. It says that he came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came down. He was commissioned by the Father, and yet the Holy Spirit was the one who caused him to be incarnated, to be enfleshed. That God is so unified in his dealings as the creed teaches us. He's so perfectly aligned with his own purpose that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have no rivalry ever. They're not one-upping each other. They're not subservient to each other. Although the Christ, as a man, is submitted to his Father, they are gloriously delighting to work together for the cause of God's people, for the glorifying of God's name. There's no rivalry in God. Jesus is not bringing a wayward flock to a disapproving Father. I want you to understand that when Jesus is atoning on the cross, yes, God, in a sense, turned away from him, but it wasn't as if there was a divorce in the fellowship of the Trinity. The great news of the gospel is that God has wrath against sinners, and God takes that wrath upon himself. He doesn't just put it as a father, an overbearing father, on an unsuspecting, innocent son. It is God taking on the sins of his people. So many people writhe against the atonement because they think of it in human terms of abuse and, and neglect and a father who cannot be appeased, and yet it is God doing it. It is God taking on the sins of his people. It is God who is in this passage giving the flock to God himself. The father is giving the flock to the son. The son does not bring a flock that God the Father has not yet recognized, hoping that they can be received. No, the Father has given the flock to the good shepherd. The Father trusts Jesus for their rescue and their protection. Just as Jesus cannot lose a single sheep, neither can the Father. And the Father is not worried whether or not the shepherd will do a good job. The Father trusts the Son and has given the flock over to his care and protection for this time. They are one in purpose, even as they are one in essence. If you have never taken systematic theology, I would encourage you, when we offer it next, be the first to sign up. Because these realities, brothers and sisters, were given to us in the scriptures that we would be engrossed, that we would be brought up into the life of God himself, that through the scriptures we can know who our God is truly and that we can be transformed. No one is like our God. We are the sheep of his pasture and the Father has given us to the eternal Son for care 
and protection. How profoundly glorious are Jesus' words in this passage. He shows not only the excellence of the Father, but he shows the unity of the Godhead. So my call to you this morning is this. As those who have returned or been returned to the flock by the good shepherd, let's not stray from his flock. If you see your heart drifting away from the good shepherd, call yourself back. Listen to his voice. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but receive him and return to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't stray from the good shepherd. The good shepherd is willing to bring you back into his fold if you have strayed. And if you are convicted by the Spirit through this passage and you perceive that you are not of God's flock, take heart. The Good Shepherd still speaks today. He can cause you to come to life and to hear His words. And if you are a part of His flock, you should know you can never be taken out of His hand. Oh, what a wonderful promise is this. Come hell or high water, as the phrase says. Believe me, brothers and sisters, come hell or high water, you cannot be taken out of the hand of the Lord Jesus if you are His sheep. No matter what you're going through, whatever circumstances you face yourself with, you are in the Lord Jesus' hand if you are a sheep. And just as the Father cannot be stopped, neither can the Good Shepherd. So, listen to His voice, and upon listening, let us praise God for His glorious protection. It is He who made us, not we ourselves. We did not cause ourselves to come to the Lord Jesus, but it is His grace all along the road, and it is His grace which preserves us and sustains us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You that He is the Good Shepherd. We thank You that He is a glorious shepherd, that He is a beautiful shepherd, that He is the true shepherd, that all the false shepherds of Israel You have stopped, and You have brought a glorious fulfillment to the promises of Your Scriptures in Jesus. We thank you that he not only fulfilled all that with which you were doing with the Jews in the time of the Old Testament, but that you had an eye towards the glorious redemption of all the Gentiles into one flock. We thank you, Lord, that you are working among your people, and we pray that you would gather us as your flock. You would also, Lord, perceive if there are any of the flock who need attention, that you would move among us, good shepherd, that you would bring back to health, and that you would cause new life to be among your people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.